Exodus 21, 1 through 11. This is the enduring word of our unchanging God. Now these are the rules that you shall set before them. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years. And in the seventh, he shall go out free for nothing. If he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, he shall go out married. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters and he shall go out alone. But if the slave declares, I love my master, my wife and my children, I will not go out free. Then his master shall bring him to God. And he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost. His master shall bore his ear through with an owl and he shall be his slave forever. And when a man sells his daughter as a slave, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. If she does not please her master who has designated her for himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people because he has broken faith with her. If he designates her for his son, he shall deal with her as with a daughter. If he takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, or her marital rights. And if he does not do these three things for her, she shall go out for nothing without payment of money. This is the reading of God's word this morning. Let's pray and ask him to bless it to us. Father, we ask that you would uh, illumine our hearts this morning. Your word is good and perfect, but we need your spirit to understand it. We need you to apply it to our hearts. Lord, we need your gospel. Please preach to us your word this morning. Please share the gospel to us. Convict us of our sins. Comfort us with the good news of Jesus. And Lord, may it be for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So there's a couple ways to deal with a passage like this, specifically a passage that deals with slavery. One of the ways that you could deal with slavery in the Bible is you could kind of approach it with this kind of this horror that, well, the Bible never actually condemns slavery. And you would then read a passage like Exodus 21 with this feeling that something is wrong, right? It never condemns slavery. That means that the Bible must be wrong. Something here must be broken. Uh, Either the Bible is wrong, or it's not perfect, or it's not really God's word. There are lots of ways to get around it, but at the end of the day, there's no real peace in your mind. Because slavery, we know, is bad, because God doesn't condemn it, the logic goes, well, that must mean that God approves of it. But that's not true. There's a different way to approach a passage like this. And that way is to, to not to pretend it doesn't exist. It's not to toss the whole Bible out. The way to, to think about it is that just because the Bible talks about it doesn't mean it's okay. Just because God allows it for a season doesn't mean that it's right and good. So we can't toss the Bible out, but nor can we pretend this passage doesn't exist. We have to grapple with the fact that God, for a season, allowed His covenant people to buy and sell slaves. The reality is that in that ancient day, in that time, slavery was a fact of life that you could not get around. You could not get away from it. There weren't labor unions. And the most common form of slavery was debt slavery. 
where if someone could not pay off their debts, suppose they borrowed money to, to, to buy food, but they couldn't pay it back, um, they would have to resort to selling themselves. They would have to sell themselves into slavery, or, or worse, their children into slavery, uh, in order to pay off those debts. Because there's no system of bankruptcy. There's no system of saying, I can't pay this back, seize my assets. There are no assets to seize, except for you. And because of this, in the ancient world, slavery was often really oppressive. That poor people were, were vulnerable, and they were targeted. There were people, there were debt sharks who, who sought to entrap poor people in generational debt. To put debt upon people that they could never hope to pay off in their lifetime. So that they could then entrap generations in a cycle of debt and slavery. There were people, these people were exploited and oppressed and treated like objects. And if you need any example of, of this in the scripture, look at how Egypt treated Israel. That's what slavery is like in the world. It's oppression. It's, it's in slavery by force. They were beaten. They were exploited for generation after generation. 400 years, Israel was enslaved in Egypt. And it's into this context, to this people, that God then says, here's how you shall do things. In a world where slavery is, is normal and inescapable and horrible... The Lord does not expressly condemn it, but He does say it shall not look like the world. In a world of slavery and debt, God says you will work different. You will not become like the nation you just left. As we explore our passage today, we will see clearly... That God's heart, His desire, is for His people to be free. That His goal, His desire, is for His people to be free. But freedom comes at a cost. And so for Israel, for His covenant people, these laws will show us that they are to pursue the freedom of their brothers and sisters, even though it may be costly to them, because that's God's heart. That's what God wants for His people. But as we will begin to see that what's going on in Exodus 21 is, is really just a small picture of something bigger. That God is teaching us something greater than just how to deal with slavery. He's going to show us something far deeper. But first in Exodus 21, we'll start to, let's look at this passage and see what God is doing. Why is he giving these laws? Now the first, uh, the first verse says, Now these are the rules that you shall set before them. And what he's referring to is not just the next few verses, but actually the next few chapters. That Exodus 21 through 23 are commonly called the Book of the Covenant. These are the laws that Israel will use to govern all of society and all of life. And all of these laws point back to the Ten Commandments. Because the Ten Commandments are the summary of God's law. They summarize uh, all of God's universal law. But in this book of the covenant, the Lord says, now let's apply the Ten Commandments to you today in, in Israel. What will it look like for you to live out the Ten Commandments, to live out the Ten Commandments in your life where you are, in, in whatever it was B.C. And the first application of the Ten Commandments that the Lord gives us uh, is 
that we see in Exodus 21 is how do we treat slaves? How do we deal with slavery? And so this passage today, Exodus 21, 1 through 11, is broken up into two sections. The first section is verses 2 through 6, and it's how do we deal with male slaves? And then the second section is verses 7 through 11, and it's how do we deal with female slaves? So the first section is how we deal with male slaves. And as we have already said, uh, slavery was, was a reality. That this was Israel's experience in Egypt. They knew what slavery was. And they had God to thank for their freedom. The fact that they're not in, ex- they're not in Egypt right now means they're not enslaved. God has brought them out of slavery. That the exodus is God's great redemptive act of freeing them from their slavery. And so the exodus shapes how Israel is to think of slavery in their life. How are we to treat slaves in light of what God has done for us? And the first thing that we see is in verse 2. Slavery in Israel will not be like in Egypt because it will not be perpetual. Verse 2. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh, he shall go out free for nothing. The first way that slavery in Israel is shaped by the Exodus and is going to look different than the world is that it will not last very long. It will last seven years, and that's it. And remember what this means. Think about what this means. Because the most common form of slavery was debt slavery. Was, I I borrowed some money, I can't pay it back, I have to sell myself into slavery. No matter how great the debt is, right? It means the debt could be huge. But this verse tells us that no matter how big your debt is, it's gone on the seventh year. This means that there shall not be in Israel loan sharks who are trying to entrap generations in debt. What God is saying is that all the slaves, all their debts are washed away, are done with, are paid on the seventh year. That is not how the nations worked. It's not how we work. If you owe money, you have to work until it's gone, until it's paid off. Same thing in the ancient world. And you had to work until your debts were paid off. And if you died before your debts were paid off, they transferred to your children. And because people could pay slaves just about whatever they wanted, you could effectively trap generations in in debt and slavery that they could never hope to get out of. And God says, no. That is not how it will work in my kingdom. God's goal is the freedom of his people. His goal, his desire is that, is that debts be erased. And Exodus, 50, Exodus 21 is expanded upon later in Scripture in Deuteronomy 15. And Deuteronomy 15 makes it clear that the seventh year is fixed. Which means that if you incurred a lot of debt on the fifth year, it's gone two years later. That no matter when you incurred the debt, you only work until that seventh year. So every seven years in Israel's calendar, all debts are erased. So if on the 364th day of the sixth year, you borrow a ton of money, 
The next day, it's forgiven. Because the Lord's desire is not that His people be trapped in slavery and debt. It's that they will be freed. So the second principle that we see is that even in slavery, even in this system, God says, you shall still treat uh, your slaves with dignity because they are humans made in my image. So what we see is that in in, uh, verse 4 and 5, the Lord says, If a master gives a slave a wife, and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be your masters, he shall go out alone. But if the slave declares, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go free, then his master shall bring him to God, and he shall bring him to the door, and his master shall bore his ear through with an owl, and he shall be his, his servant forever. He shall serve him forever. Now, I'm not exactly sure why a wife given in slavery remains with the master. I'm not exactly sure why. But that's not the main point of these verses. The main point is what God values. Verse 5, If the slave declares, I love my master, he can stay freely. This is a free choice that the man is making. No one is coercing him. No one is forcing him into perpetual slavery. He's making a free, conscious decision to stay. Which means that the Lord's desire is not for perpetual slavery, but whether the slave goes out or stays in the house, they are free. Whether it's on the seventh year or when they decide to stay... They are free, and they can make that choice freely. That's the polar opposite of how slavery works in the world. You don't get to choose whether you stay a slave or not. You don't get to choose your master. But in Israel, it works differently. If you love your master, you get to stay. Which means that the master is a good one, who takes care of you. This means that if, if you, as an Israelite, are a really bad master, and you treat your slaves poorly, and don't treat them like humans, they can just leave for free, for nothing. Because that's what the Lord desires. It's not slavery, not debt, but freedom. And likewise... The next section, verses 7 through 11, show the same thing. Because here it says, here's how you deal then with female slaves. Verse 7, when a man sells his daughter as a slave, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. So the first thing we learn is that the rules for female slaves work differently than for male slaves. And at first we say, we, we say well, that doesn't seem fair. Right? This actually seems worse for women than it does for men. But there's a reason for this. And the reason is that the word there for slave is different than the word for slave in verse 2. The word in verse 7 means when a man sells his daughter as as sort of like a concubine. Which again has a very negative connotation for us. But think of it like this. It was common in the ancient world for, for powerful men to assemble a harem. Right, to assemble uh, a harem of, of slave women. And easy targets were daughters of men in deep debt. 
That if men were, if you oppressed and put people, poor people into debt, they would have to sell their kids to get out of it. And again, the Lord is not saying that this is okay. He's not saying this is good and I approve of it. But what he's saying is, is that this form of slavery in Israel is not going to look anything like what it looks like in the world. Because in verse 8 it says that if she does not please her master who has designated her for himself, and he shall let her be redeemed, he shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people because he has broken faith with her. What this verse means is that when a man buys a, a, a woman for himself, as horrible as that sounds to us, when he does that, if for whatever reason he decides he doesn't like her anymore... She has the right to be redeemed. That means bought back by her family and not by someone else. He doesn't get to just sell her on like she's an object. She can be redeemed by her family because, it says, he has broken faith with her. And that word, broken faith, is the same word that shows up in Malachi 2 when God condemns husbands for breaking faith with their wives. It is marital unfaithfulness. So what God is saying is that when you buy a woman in this way, you are in truth marrying her. And so you don't get to just divorce her whenever you want to. And that's why a a female slave does not go out like a male slave does, because that would be like, uh, that's divorce. If on the seventh year, all the female slaves went out, that would mean that they are now divorced women. That the marriage was overridden. And that now their prospects are extremely bad. Because the prospects for a widow or for a divorced woman were really bad. God says, no, you shall not treat them like that. You don't get to just divorce them whenever you want. And this is why, in a couple verses later... It says, if this man takes another woman for himself, he shall not diminish the first woman, her food, her clothing, or her marital rights. In other words, you are in truth when you marry someone. When you buy a woman in this way, you are marrying them, and you must fulfill the obligations of a husband for her. You don't get to treat her like an object. You don't get to treat her differently than the free woman. You treat all of them, whether they're slave or free, equally. And again, the Lord is not saying that polygamy is good. God is not saying polygamy is great, let's do it. He's saying in this context where it's common, it will not look like how the world does things. You will not do it the same way. You will, you will prioritize, you will desire for your people, for your brothers and sisters in Christ, you will desire that you treat them how I have treated you. That the exodus shapes how they are to treat each other. They are not to make distinctions between the poor and the rich. They are not to enslave each other. They are not to seek to oppress each other. And they are not to seek to use each other as objects. Because if this husband who has bought a wife for himself, if he does not fulfill his side of the bargain, if he, does not, if he is not faithful to the covenant, she gets to leave for free. Verse 11. 
If he does not do these three things for her, her food, her clothing, or her marital rights, she shall go out for nothing without payment of money. Now this means that, as, as Pastor Brad is fond of saying, if a husband does not provide for, does not protect, and does not give children to his wife, whether she is slave or free, she gets to leave. Because he has broken covenant with her. He has, in essence, either explicitly divorced her or implicitly divorced her by not being faithful. In all these ways, whether it's male slaves or female slaves, the Lord is saying, you shall not be like Egypt. You shall not be like the nations. You shall uphold the dignity and freedom of even the lowliest of your brothers and sisters. Even if that means that it's costly. This system that the Lord is setting up is not favorable to masters. It's actually really expensive. That if you do not treat your slaves well, they leave. And in essence, that's you don't get a return on your investment. If you are not faithful in providing for your slaves, they have every reason to leave. If you are not faithful to your wife in providing for her, in feeding her, protecting her, and giving her children, you have broken covenant. And these are all costly things, right? Kids are expensive. They're expensive today. They're expensive back then. Taking care of someone else, being a faithful master is expensive because it means treating them as free people. Protecting, providing. The Lord is saying, even at your personal cost, this is what you must prioritize. Not yourself, not your money, not your time, not your energy. You shall prioritize the freedom and dignity of your brothers and sisters. Even if it's costly. Because the Lord is saying, that is what I have done for you. The exodus shapes in every way how Israel is to treat each other. That as God has freed them, they are to treat each other in this freedom. So that's how Exodus 21 shows us that the Lord, He desires His people to be free. To be free from slavery and free from debt, even if it's costly. And where things start to get really interesting is when you start to look at how the New Testament then uses this language. How does the New Testament use this language of debt and slavery and freedom? Actually, it uses it all over the place. We, uh, we prayed it today. Father, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Colossians 2, as we read in our, uh, in our assurance of pardon, you were dead in your trespasses, but God has made you alive by canceling the record of debt that stood against you. Or the parable of the unforgiving slave, uh, where in Matthew 18, a slave owed an enormous debt to the king, but the king wiped it away. And Jesus said, that's you and God and your sin. Sin incurs debt. Sin makes us slaves. And so we owe God for every sin that we've ever committed. 
Because we owe God perfect worship. Perfect obedience. And when we sin, we defraud God of what is owed to Him. When we break His law, when we sin, when we rebel, we incur debt. And there's only two ways to deal with debt. It has to either be paid off by you, or it has to be forgiven. But forgiveness in the New Testament is costly. Just like how freedom in Exodus 21 was costly, it required personal sacrifice. In in the New Testament, in Scripture, forgiveness of sins is costly. I was reading uh, something this past week, and the author pointed out that in this parable of the unforgiving slave, remember this this slave, he owed the king a great amount. Let's say it's $5 billion. He owes $5 billion to the king, and the king forgives his debt completely. Well, the king's net worth just went down by $5 billion. That was costly for him to forgive that debt. Forgiveness is costly because forgiveness means you take upon yourself the debt that someone else owes. Because there cannot be forgiveness if the debt is not paid. So back to your sin. Either you have to pay your debt off or someone else has to. It's costly either way. But God, because He wants so deeply for you to be free from your debts that He decided that He would pay them off for you. That is what forgiveness is. Forgiveness is Jesus taking upon Himself the debts of your sin. Forgiveness is Jesus paying off the price for your sins. And the only way for Him to do that is if he becomes a slave in your place. For him to pay off your debts, he has to become a debt slave in your place. And so it shouldn't surprise us that when we turn to Philippians 2, Paul says, Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a slave. Jesus took the form of a slave. And he died the death of a slave. Because that is the price for sin, is death on a cross, God's judgment, God's wrath. That is what your sin deserves. That is the cost that your sin has incurred. And Jesus said, I'm going to pay it. I'm going to go to the cross. I'm going to be shamed and humiliated and degraded and oppressed Because he wanted you to be dignified. He wanted you to be free. Free from your debts. And so Paul says in Colossians that God has canceled the record of your debt by nailing it to the cross. And so, so get this. Where was Jesus on the seventh day? He was resting. Why was he resting? 
because the work was finished. The debt was paid off on the seventh day. Just like how in Exodus 21, the debt is considered paid off in the seventh year because the work is done, Jesus died. On the sixth day, he finished the work and he rested on the seventh, which means your debts are completely paid off. It means there is no more debt. Your sin has no more debt. It's paid off. And because of that, you get to rest. You get to rest in the work of Christ. And that's why Exodus 21, 1-11 is about the fourth commandment. He's saying, here's how you shall live out the fourth commandment. You shall rest on the seventh. That's what Israel did. And that's what we get to do. Through Jesus, who's finished the work. But we still have to answer another question. Now that we've received such an amazing salvation, how do we apply these verses in Exodus to an age where thankfully none of us owns any slaves? I, I hope. If you do, please come talk to me. Um, if Israel was to treat each other as free, right? As, if they were to have everything that they do for each other be shaped by the Exodus, how much more should the cross shape how we treat each other? How much more should the debt that we have been forgiven shape how we love and forgive each other? That's actually the driving point of the parable of the unforgiving slave. Because before it, Peter asks him, Lord, how many times shall I forgive? Seven times? And Jesus responds, 70 times, seven times. Which is kind of like if Peter came up and said, How many times shall I forgive, Lord? And Jesus says, Yes. Definitely. All the time. Forever. <laughs> yes and amen. Forgive. How many times? As many as it takes. How can we do this? How can we forgive each other? It's because we have a Lord who has forgiven us. How can we who then have been, had our, our debt of sin erased by Jesus who took it upon himself, how can we turn around and then put more debt on each other by not forgiving? We can't do that. Or to put it another way, just as Israel is to live out the Exodus, you are to live out the cross. The cross where Jesus paid your debts. Live that out for each other. Forgive one another. Love one another and treat each other as forgiven people. Not because we're all great and perfect, because we have a perfect Savior. Because our debts are paid by Jesus Christ. And the more that you know, the more that you rest in Christ's forgiveness, the more natural forgiving each other is going to feel. There's one author who said that, A cup full of sweet water will never spill vinegar, no matter how hard you hit it. A cup full of sweet water will never spill vinegar, no matter how hard you hit it. A Christian full of the forgiveness of Christ will spill forgiveness, no matter how hard they're hit.
And thankfully, the Lord fills us up with His forgiveness every week. In His Word, and in the supper before us. Because here, the supper that the Lord fills our cup full of forgiveness. Because the supper shows us tangibly, with our eyes, it shows us, this is the price for your forgiveness. The body and blood of Christ. But it shows us that he was willing to take upon himself that debt. And he paid it completely off. And now he gives us this meal. A reminder every single week of the forgiveness we have in Christ, that our debts are paid, and that now we get to eat and drink and rejoice as free people in the grace of God. So I'd like to invite the elder forward so that we can receive this meal. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the forgiveness that you have given us. Lord, as we rest in it today, we pray that you would work this truth into our hearts, that you would fill our cup with forgiveness so that we might spill out into the lives of our neighbors, our friends, our brothers and sisters in Christ. Lord, may you help us to be a forgiving people, not because we all deserve it, but because of the forgiveness we've received through Christ. Help us to not be like the, the unforgiving servant who, who charged each, his, his neighbor with debt even after receiving such a great forgiveness. Lord, teach us these things. Teach us to rejoice in Christ. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.